Hi, everyone. This is Aaron Larson, executive editor of Power Magazine, and you are listening to the Power Podcast. On today's episode, I'm joined by Jill DeVarcus. She's the Senior Director of Development with Florida Power and Light. Jill, thanks for joining me. Please tell a little bit about yourself and what you do with FPL. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. Uh, so as you mentioned, I'm the Senior Director of Development for FPL. I am responsible for our distributed technology and e-mobility development team. Um, so what that means is I'm responsible for leading the development and execution of new and innovative distributed energy programs, including our electric vehicle infrastructure pilot, as well as our EV outreach and education, and our first large-scale battery pilot program. So the way that I like to put it is I get to work on a lot of new things that the utility wasn't even thinking about, you know, over five years ago. I also was instrumental in the development launch of our FPL Solar Together program that we launched uh, last year, which is FPL's community solar program um, that is one of the largest in the U.S. It sounds like a really interesting job, and you're kind of on the leading edge there with the renewable energy and the energy storage. Florida is the sunshine state, which makes solar energy kind of an attractive option. So can you talk a little bit about what the company has done? You mentioned some of the projects in community solar, but how are they getting all of this solar energy into the mix, and and what are you doing to help incorporate it into the the grid? Yeah, so as you mentioned, and like so many Floridians, we are big fans of solar energy, and we've been working to advance solar in the state for more than a decade. So we currently have 37 solar energy centers in operation, uh, with seven more under construction, uh, which it makes FPL the largest producer of solar power in Florida. Our solar journey started back in 1984 when we commissioned our first universal solar installation, which was a 10 kW PV facility in Miami. Um, so it brings it away back to certainly small um, toe-in-the-water approach to solar there. We then fast-forwarded to 2009 when we had our large-scale solar development kicked off with President Obama commissioning the 25-megawatt DeSoto Solar Energy Center in DeSoto County. Since then, we've built an additional 35 solar energy centers, as I I mentioned, all of which are 74.5 megawatts. Our commitment to clean energy is evidenced by our groundbreaking 30 by 30 goal to install 30 million solar panels by the year 2030. By 2029, we project that we'll have uh, 11,000 megawatts of installed solar capacity. That's enough to power more than 2 million homes. Um, We expect that once that 30 by 30 plan is complete, solar energy will make up 20% of FPL's total energy mix by means plate capacity. Um, Our investments in affordable and clean energy continue to improve the efficiency of our system, reduce fuel consumption and emissions, and keep costs down for our customers over the long term. What hit close to home for me, as I mentioned, is the community solar program that we launched last year with Solar Together. And I think an important aspect of that is that, you know, it not only brings solar energy into our renewable mix, but it also brings it directly to our consumers. So it was providing an alternative for customers who were interested in procuring solar energy and offsetting, you know, up to all of their energy consumption that way. Yeah, I think community solar is is really an attractive option for a lot of people who just can't put solar panels on their roof and and things like that. So I think it's great that you're offering that. One thing that, of course, Florida is also known for, in addition to sunshine, is hurricanes, because we do get a lot of potential hits from, from hurricanes in the hurricane season. How does that affect 
FPL's decision-making process when it comes to putting solar panels in different areas? What do you have to do differently that maybe other states don't have to do? Yeah, so I would say, you know, as a utility, safety and reliability are our number one priority with everything we do, whether it's our energy mix to how we operate even within our corporate office. Um, So we prepare year-round to respond to these severe weather and hurricanes to ensure that we can respond safely and as quickly as possible to restore power to any customers that have been impacted. If a storm's pass is expected to impact an area near our solar power plants, we have crews inspect and secure all equipment at the site to minimize those potential impacts. Um, we also incorporate all the relevant Florida building code requirements into the design of our support structures and solar arrays to ensure that they meet the applicable wind load requirements. Um, the support pilings are sufficiently deep and the panels are securely fastened to those support systems so that wind damage is typically not a concern. In fact, during Hurricane Irma in 2017, three of our operating sites were directly in the storm's path they withstood substantial winds and rainfall, and only approximately 50 out of the 1.1 million panels were struck by the breeze and required replacing. Uh, as it relates to other states, you know, other developers need to build to the local code requirements, regardless of whether it's Florida or not. Other states have other risks and costs, tornadoes, sinkholes, shallow bedrock, uh, et cetera. Florida certainly has its own challenges, just like everywhere else. Not something that should get in the way, though, of a renewable energy mix or embracing solar. And then, you know, with regards to cost, it's really all relative. Uh, We might have deeper piles because of the wind and load, but we also have a great solar resource. Um, In addition, Florida is flat, so we aren't typically doing much earthwork on the sites. Um, Our FPL's energy grid is very robust, so we don't need to upgrade the system to accommodate the new solar system. Really, what we've seen year over year is that the price As prices continue to decline, we benefit from the economies of scale and our purchasing power to get the lowest possible prices from vendors and EPCs. Um, Every group of sites that we build proves to be cost-effective benefit to our customers. Another thing that's really changing is electric vehicles. You know, uh, back in January, General Motors announced that it was going to switch to all electric vehicles by 2035. How is that affecting what Florida Power is doing. Are you starting to plan for this insurge of electric vehicles, and and how is that going to uh, affect the power demand? Yes, so I think General Motors' announcement was certainly very meaningful for the EV space. There have also been a number of similar announcements, and so I think there's no doubt that the um, electric transportation revolution is, is underway already. FPL has been investing in clean transportation for over a decade. Uh, We were the first electric company in America to place a hybrid electric bucket truck into service in 2006. Um, We also operate a a very Florida's clean fleet, so we have one of the largest uh, green fleets in the nation um, with uh, nearly 1,800 biodiesel hybrid, plug-in hybrid, and electric vehicles on the road. As, As it relates to the infrastructure space, which is what Um, my team is responsible for and what I'm very passionate about. We launched a program in 2019 called FPL Evolution. It's an electric vehicle charging infrastructure pilot program. So our goal with the program is to install 1,000 charging ports in 100 locations in our service area across the state. Um, Goal to increase the availability of universal EVID charging by 50%. We created the program to boost Florida's EV infrastructure and support EV adoption. 
um, by partnering with local businesses, organizations, and municipalities. The goal here is to ensure that we are reducing range anxiety and making access to EV charging. In addition to accelerating the adoption of EVs, the EV initiative is also really intended to help us generate valuable data to help us ensure the continued reliability of the energy grid for all FPL customers. Um, so from our perspective, you know, this is a pilot program that is really enabling us to learn as the, as the utility ahead of mass adoption to ensure that uh, the infrastructure upgrades uh, and placement that we're making in the future is done in a thoughtful manner that benefits all of our customers. To that end, installations for the Evolution Pilot encompass different EV charging technologies and market segments. So we are putting level two chargers at workplace. Um, we have fleet charging at public and our private workplaces. We are also looking at some residential charging in customers' homes, destination charging at well-attended locations, and then public fast charging infrastructure. I think the fast charging infrastructure part of this is very interesting. We are have the goal of putting fast charging stations every 50 miles along the over 800 miles of major highways and corridors within the service territory. So these are locations such as um, Florida Turnpike and I-95. Again, the goal here is to reduce range anxiety, uh, which we view as being one of the larger barriers to adoption. We also have two really interesting um, school bus projects underway. So using grant money um, from Volkswagen, as well as a partner, an innovative partnership with the city of West Palm Beach, we are looking at a vehicle-to-grid school bus pilot. So we're trying to cover all aspects of what's happening within the EV space to help support and grow that adoption and be doing so in a, in a meaningful and reliable way for our customers. The vehicle-to-grid is one way to, to get energy storage into your systems. Has FPL been investing a lot in energy storage? And, and if so, what type of technologies do you think are, are the most advantageous? Are they looking at lithium-ion mainly, or are there other things that are, are piquing interest? Yes. Yeah, so as an integrated utility, we have the ability to test batteries really in three categories. So as a generation resource, uh, as a transmission and distribution resource, and then at customer sites, so on the customer side of things. Um, we feel it's important for us to learn quickly on kind of two primary objectives. So, you know, what are the most promising applications, as you just mentioned, for FPL system? And then to get experience with battery installation and operation, including software and controls. Um, so we have been in, you know, full experimentation phase on batteries for the last, you know, five or so year and have years and have a variety of pilots underway. Our 50 megawatt pilot program was authorized as part of our 2016 rate case. Um, through that pilot program, we have about eight or nine projects. So the Winwood Energy Storage Facility in, in Miami's Winwood neighborhood designed to address how energy capacity can be added in densely populated areas. Um, another one, another pilot project is a renewable microgrid that will help power FIU's engineering campus in the event of severe weather. Um, we're also in the process of developing the FPL Evolution Hub. Um, which will be in Riviera Beach, and that will feature a solar array, a stationary battery, and two mobile solar-powered EV, EV trailers. Um, this ability for us to experiment with batteries has really been has really been thanks to our positive regulatory environment in Florida and the ability to experiment and learn ahead of and a mass adoption of battery storage technologies. 
Um, following the years of our pilot projects, we are now also in the midst of construction's largest integrated solar-powered battery in the world, which will increase the predictability of solar power and extend the life of solar energy even when the sun is not shining, such as at night or on a cloudy day. So at 409 megawatts and 900 megawatt hours, I'm talking about the Manatee Solar Energy Center, which is located in Parrish, Florida. Um, it will have enough power, sorry, it will have enough capacity to power 329,000 homes for more than two hours. Um, this is FPL's first you know, cost-effective non-pilot storage project uh, that we're very excited to bring online later this year. Um, in terms of technologies, we do try to remain technology agnostic as a, you know, as the utility and really just embrace and learn, embrace new technologies and figure out what are the applications that are best. I don't think we've yet arrived at, you know, there being one one killer app for our system. I think there are a variety of applications that will that will that will help us improve our system, but will also help us to continue to integrate more renewable into our energy mix. Mm. The costs are probably still coming down, so I imagine as as that shakes out, uh, more decisions will will be made based on on cost. So the last question I wanted to get into was, you know talking about women's issues and, and the fact that, you know, in the power industry, you know, it's been kind of a, a men's club for a long time, but there are a lot of women leaders stepping up into roles of, you know, CEO, such as Lynn Good at Duke Energy and Paula Gold-Williams at CPS Energy and Patty Pope at PG&E and, and many others. So how has it been for you on your journey to this leadership role that you're in with FPL? What, what has it been like and, and what uh, what sort of advice could you give to women who are following in your footsteps? Yeah, so I, I think I would say first and foremost that I look forward to the day when it's not noteworthy that women are in the boardroom, but I am pleased by by the progress. Um, I am fortunate to have uh, to have really uh, risen in my career relatively quickly, um, but I didn't do that alone. And, and then when I say that you know, I was fortunate. I want to be clear about I was, I worked hard. And so if I were to look back at, you know, what would I recommend to others? How has my career path gone? There's a few different, few kind of key areas I think that are pieces of advice that I would offer. I think the first is to work hard. So Grit is a great book by Angela Duckworth that talks about this. And, and she has a quote in there um, where she says, I may not be the smartest person in the room, but I'll strive to be the grittiest. And uh, that resonates with me because I can say I am rarely the smartest person in the room, but I will work the hardest. And so really what I think helped me um, be successful in my career was my willingness to put the time in uh, and put the work in and, you know, continue to see things through to the end. The second thing that I think is very important, you know, I think working hard is a is a very universal trait for how to be how to be successful. I think something that's very um, important though for women is to speak up. Um, but I would caveat that by saying speak up, but do it in a meaningful way with how you engage and get to the point. So you know, you have Sheryl Sandberg who had Lean In, which was an excellent you know an excellent book for women who are. Um, trying to climb the corporate ladder to listen to. I think, you know, an, an anecdote that resonates with me as a woman is 
you know, talking about leaning in, asking questions, speaking up. I think often you look around the room and the people who are not afraid to ask questions, at least in my experience, tend to be men as well as to offer their opinion. And I think women need to understand that there's a reason in there that they are in that room as well. And their opinion is very important. Um, but the quicker you can get to the point and voice your opinion, the more it's going to be heard. Um, the, the other part of that would be, you know, at some point I had someone point out to me, there's someone I work with who's just, you know, absolutely brilliant, very measured, uh, and, and doesn't speak up super often. It's more so to the point where, you know, people look to this person within the room for their opinion. They don't need to speak up to offer it. I think that's something that at this point is um, really possible, is more possible as a man. And so I think as a woman, you can't really let, you can't wait for people to look for, to you to offer your opinion. You have to be willing to offer it yourself and you have to have an opinion in order to offer offer it. Um, my last piece of advice that I think is true for women and how we present ourselves and how we move forward is to um, lead, always lead with empathy and respect, but don't compromise yourself. I think something that I've noticed for my career is how, you know, we're perceived as women. I will say I am confident and assertive, but the other negative end of the spectrum of that is to say that I am aggressive and argumentative. Um, confident and assertive is what got me to where I am. Aggressive and argumentative, I think, are negative traits that are attributed to women. I think women need to not be afraid to um, take on those negative traits, but really to look at it as you know, what are you offering to the situation? And so long as you can um, treat people with respect and be nice and lead with empathy, continue to be confident and assertive. Um, those are those are really kind of the three areas. So work hard, speak up, and uh, don't compromise yourself are really what I think I would attribute to my success in this space. I think that's all great advice, and, and it applies both to men and women. So I think anyone can learn from, from your uh, point of view. So thank you very much for your time, Jill. Is there any last words that you want to leave the audience with? Yeah, I think the last thing I want to impart um, to women and men is that the success of women in in the professional workspace is on all of us to help up, uplift the women around us. Um, years ago, when I was in the beginning of my career, my mom wrote me a note that I keep for inspiration. And to paraphrase it, she said, you are my girl and I love you madly. There's a long line of important women who came before you and you were right there blazing on. To me, this is a great reminder that I didn't get to where I am today alone and that it's on me to continue to uplift women. Um, one thing that I do to ensure that is whenever I'm interviewing for a position, I don't make a decision until I've seen a qualified, uh, until I've seen qualified female candidates. Um, the other thing that I do is I want to make sure that my bias isn't coming into play. And so when I interview, I, I also often do panel interviews so that I'm not just selecting the candidate that's most like me or most meet my needs, but rather that's the right person for the job. Um, these are very small changes, right? Looking to HR and recruitment and saying, please show me more female candidates or please show me more diversity candidates. But there, it's a small change that we can all make. And I think it's important for us all to take that on. I agree. That's uh, a great, great uh, method of, of interviewing new candidates and finding the right and the best option for your business. Thank you very much, Jill. And 
I appreciate it again. I, I think you're doing a great job by the by the sounds of it and by what I've seen FPL uh, accomplishing in my territory. So thanks for your hard work. Great. Thank you.